That was spectacular. Yes, her fingers are insured with Lloyd's of London for $1 million apiece. And rightly so. Good job, guys, girls, ladies, sweets. Good job. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn back to Proverbs chapter 29. That was a lively little song. Get us into a lively little sermon this morning. You know, last week we, uh, we looked at uh, what I believe is an incredible set of verses that really deal with our rejoicing uh, when we follow the authority of the Word of God uh, over today what is man-made rules, you know, that put us under the bondage of, of, uh, of, of, of what people want to control us with. You know, the great truth that true happiness and joy and contentment can only come through our obedience to the Word of God. And, uh, you know, the book of Judges is a great example of that. It, it goes through there, and uh, as long as Israel is doing what's right, everything is good. When they don't, then they get sold into the captivity of all these different, and God has to raise up a judge to get them out of it. And, you know, the theme of, of the book of Judges that it was written in our hymnal here uh, basically is trust and obey. And that's a great, great song based on biblical principles. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And boy, that is so, that is so true. And then also we talked about the, the great doctrine of our liberty in Christ and how that liberty has to be used uh, to edify Christ or, or somebody else. Our liberty is never given uh, for us to do our, our own thing. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And your liberty and my liberty is what we find when we let the Holy Spirit of God lead and guide us and give us everything that we need. You know, one of the arguments of the charismatic crowd, uh, they believe you can lose your salvation. And one of their arguments is that uh, they claim that people who uh, or Baptists in particular, who uh, believe the doctrine of eternal security, uh, they talk about all the time that, uh, you know, that we're the kind of people that, that uh, believe because you are saved and you have eternal security that, you know, we just do whatever we want to do. And, of course, uh, I, I understand that there's a lot of God's people like that, but nothing could be farther from the truth if you're a Bible believer. You know, and, and i got to say, in almost 50 years of ministry, I've never one time... Uh, ever found a charismatic who knew anything about the Bible. Um, without a doubt, they are, you know, they are brain dead when it comes to the Word of God. And uh, they are the dumbest people on earth when it comes to trying to open up the Bible and figure anything out in it. And uh, they, they hold a total disregard to the Bible as any final authority. And of course, we all know that they put their feelings and their emotions and their experiences over what the clear Word of God teaches. And, uh, and what a charismatic could never get to or grasp, I mean, forget the fact that in the Bible there's 12 fundamental doctrines about salvation that if you understood them, you couldn't ever get to the place where you lose your salvation. I mean, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of propitiation, the doctrine of, of expiation, the doctrine of imputation. Now, these are all doctrines in the Bible that deal with salvation that once you understand them, you see how absolutely absurd that that heresy is that you could lose your salvation. But like I said, you know, uh, their mindset is don't confuse me with the facts. They, they just want to believe what they want to believe, and they certainly have that lie that God has given them. But what really they can't see or they miss when it comes to that aspect, what they say, 
And uh, if, if a man's salvation is real and he, he uh, uh, when a guy really gets saved, you don't want to sin anymore. It isn't a fact that, oh, I'm going to get saved so I can do what I want to do. You realize that that's what God saved you from was your sin and that was going to send you to hell. And when you got saved, you got a new heart, you got a new spirit, you got a new nature, and you're coming now a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away and all things become new. So, you know, and in time, and in time, you learn to love what God loves and hate what God hates, and God hates our sin. So when you do sin, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, when you do sin, uh, you know, you hate it. You don't enjoy it. You don't get up every morning and say, oh boy, I'm saved. Now oh, I can just live my life and do what I want to do. That's, that's, that's not the way it works. And what a charismatic is seeing, or what he wants to see, and they don't see very much, is he's seeing people out there who, who, who claim to be Christian, who, um, you know, that's what they do. That's the lifestyle. And, you know, last week we saw that the righteous rejoice at the authority of the Word of God uh, and, you know, and, and, and their life. And now he loves the wisdom of God. We saw this last week. The problem is that a person who takes that position, that now I'm saved, I can do whatever I want to do. And let me be honest, there are people out there that do that. But the truth of the matter is that uh, they have never truly really been saved. There's no change. I mean, salvation may be a free gift, but it's conditional on you turning your life into a different direction. And we'll call this the doctrine of, of repentance. And yes, that's one of the twelve. You know, you can't come to God with the world in one hand and the Word of God in the other. It just wasn't work. But that's, that's what they see. And, uh, you know, and you deceive yourself when you, you think that you can. And, of course, we saw that last week in Ezekiel chapter 14 where God will very clearly give you a lie to believe if, if you want one. Now, today, we're going to look at another verse that I think is a really good verse and one that really... Uh, lay some things out and you know uh, it, these are the kind of verses that come along every once in a while um, that there'll be some there'll be some historical stuff there'll be some practical stuff but you're going to learn some things about your bible today and i think that when we have these little times they they spin off into thursday night and I'll give you off into a little study that you can maybe get a few more pieces of the bible together for you and i want to i want to preach on proverbs chapter 29 just verse 4 today and here's what it says. The king by judgment established the land, but he that receiveth gifts uh, over, overthroweth it. Cody, would you stand up and ask God blessing on the sermon this morning? Tell me, please. Now, I'm going to take this verse this morning, and we're going to get some practical stuff out of it because I like to squeeze everything out of it that I can. But there's some things here about your Bible you need to get down if you're ever going to really learn your Bible. And I realize that most of you come to this church because of the Bible you get. You, you, you want to learn the Bible. You have a desire to learn it and to know and to understand, you know, how it all fits together. And I commend you for that, and I, I think that probably the majority of you are here for that today. But it's little verses like these today that really show you a little-known secret about um, your Bible and how you will learn it and how you will put it together. And, uh, you know, I make mentions to this every once in a while in Bible study on Thursday night or something like that or people ministry or definitely for institute. 
but this is lost today for the most part. And, you know, in my day when I was 18, 19, and 20 and I was getting into the Bible, you know, this, was, this stuff was Bible 101, uh, but not anymore. Now, what I'm about to show you is rejected today by 99.9999% of the pastors, theologians, and the Bible scholars uh, in the world today. So you know it's got to be good. Uh, because the Bible tells us in John chapter 10, verse 21, the only thing that Jesus ever rejoiced in to his father was the fact that he hid truth from the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And boy, God has hid it from them today. Now let's look at verse 4 here and let's begin to kind of move through this. It says, The king by judgment established the land, uh, but he that receiveth gifts overthroweth it. Now, doctrinally, uh, this will uh, be one of those contrast verses that we talk about so much. Doctrinally, this will be a reference to two events that's going to take place in our future. The land being established will be a reference to the second coming of Christ and the millennium. The receiving of gifts, we've studied that before in Proverbs 18, 16, 21, 14, always connected with the Antichrist, how he takes bribes and fixes things during that. So it'll be a reference to the to the Antichrist and the tribulation period. Now, the thing I want you to note here is, uh, is the punctuation mark at the end of the first part. The king by judgment established the land, and then you have a colon. And... Uh, I, uh, in English grammar, uh, a colon is used to separate uh, two clauses or two thoughts. And in the Bible, you're going to find that the punctuation of a colon, uh, most of the time, uh, I'm not going to say every time, but I'm going to say that most of the time, uh, and I'm probably wrong, it probably is every time, but I just leave myself a little wiggle room here, you will find that it separates one dispensation from another one main event from another. And uh, most pastors today in their preaching or their Bible teaching, they don't follow that. They don't believe that. So where mine is based on biblical principles and laid out, they're preaching a colonoscopy to you that really doesn't do much for you. But uh, punctuation in the Bible is, is crucial. I've talked to you before about the paragraph marks in the Bible. And, uh, you know, the paragraph marks in the Bible, again, they're vital in rightly dividing the word of truth. And we don't have time to get into it all this morning. But I will tell you this, you don't find any punctuation marks after Acts chapter 20. And there's a reason for that. But you find them all through your Bible up to Acts chapter 20. And I'll tell you something else. The only Bible in the history of the world that's got punctuation marks in it will be a King James 1611 authorized version. You're going to find that you have words in italics in your Bible. Those words in italics are very important. They will, God will use them sometimes to give you something and show you something that you wouldn't get. And those words in italics were put in by the translators because you don't get a direct translation across the board from going from one language to another. So to make it make sense, they put them in there. But they put them in there under the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God and they mean something and they'll show you things. Again, only Bible in the history of the world that has the words in italics will be a King James 1611 authorized version. And uh, then, of course, we've studied many, many times the key words in the Bible themselves. And, uh, you know, let me, uh, but the punctuation is absolutely crucial. Now, let me give you an easy example of this, and we've seen this before, especially the people in Bible Institute, and, uh, but for everybody else's benefit. Uh, turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And let's look here for just a moment, and I'm going to show you, this is an easy one to see, 
and uh, it kind of sets the pace for you, so you begin to look for them. But Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and, sec, uh, six and 7 is a great verse on God's plan uh, for eternity. Now, in the Bible, you're going to find that God has three distinct plans. He has a plan for the universe. He has a plan for earth. And he has a plan for you. He has an overall plan for the universe. This will be Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. He also has a plan for the earth. This will be also Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. He also has a plan for you. This will also be Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Because the universe contains the earth and the earth contains you. So all three plans are separate, but they're connected together. Now let me show you how this works. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. I'm going to read it first, and then I'm going to come back and we'll lay it out. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counsel, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end to the throne of David to order and establish it even for henceforth forever. Now, that's the two verses. Now, let me show you how the punctuation breaks it down for you. Uh, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then you have a colon. Verse 6, the first part, is the first coming of Christ. He came as a son as he came as a child. The next, and it stops with a colon. The next one, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Colon. That'll be the second coming of Christ. So here you have in one verse the first coming and the second coming laid out and separated for you by the punctuation of a colon. And uh, the government shall be on his shoulders will be the second coming going into the millennium. Colon. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counsel, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Now we're into eternity. So there's two verses that doctrinally, dispensationally divide themselves up by the punctuation. And once you learn these things, there are great keys to opening up uh, your, the Bible for you. Uh, and, you know, in our verse itself, in, in, we have the, uh, the king by judgment establish the land. That'll be the second coming in the millennium. And then, but he that receiveth gifts uh, overthroweth it. That'll be the Antichrist. So you see that here again, two different events, actually two different dispensations are covered by uh, the Kohen. Now, here's something else you want to see. And this is kind of interesting here. Uh, The Kohen will separate the two different events in the Bible, but now what I want you to see is the aspect that they're reversed. The second coming was declared first. The tribulation was put in second. In the order of the happening of the events, the tribulation should have been first, then the establishment of the land. But he didn't. He reversed it. And, you know, you're going to find that in the Bible, uh, God does it this way, and there's a reason why that he does it. And uh, you'll find that uh, um, in Genesis and in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, he does the exact same thing. You'll find that there's two books in your Bible that are definitive books. The first book in the Old Testament is Genesis. So he gives us Genesis, and then he gives us four historical books that cover a time period after he gives us a definitive book on Genesis. When you get to the New Testament, he gives the four historical books first, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then the definitive book for the New Testament, the book of Acts. Why is that? What was God's mindset behind doing those kind of things that he did? And you'll see it again uh, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Come back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, this is your first prophecy in the, in the Bible 
on the, uh, on the Lord Jesus Christ and the Antichrist. And it, it without a doubt, is, uh, it's, one of the, it's, it's one of the great prophecies in the Bible. But I want you to see something. And here's what he says. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. He's talking to the devil now. And I will put enmity between uh, thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Now, we don't, we'll stop right here for just a second. The key word here is the devil's got a seed. Do you understand that? He just told you that God's going to put enmity between God's seed, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, and the devil's seed. That's the Antichrist. But yet we go one step further, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, we know that the seed is also the Word of God, and it says we know we're not saved by corruptible seed, there it is, but by incorruptible, by the Word of God. So not only is there two seed to produce two people, there's two seeds that produce two Bibles. And that's very important that you understand that. But that's not what I'm trying to get to you. I just threw that in. Now look at this thing. Uh, I, will, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now it says, I will put enmity between uh, thee and the woman and between thy seed uh, and her seed. Now look at it. it will, and it shall bruise thy head. That's the second coming of Christ. That'll be Psalms chapter 74, verse 14, where the heads of Leviathan get broken. It shall bruise thy head, (coughs) second coming, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's the first coming. At the first coming of Christ, the heel of Christ, the seed of Christ was bruised. At the second coming, uh, the head of Leviathan gets, gets broken. But notice, again, they're reversed. And here you have the second coming first, and you have the first coming second. Now, you've got to ask yourself, why is that? And he does that throughout the Scriptures in many, many places. And this is a very important aspect of you figuring out your Bible. And you're about to see an invaluable part of your Bible that's well worth over $100 million if you put a price tag on it. Now, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. And I know we're going to a lot of places today. You won't be able to sleep through this sermon. 1 Peter chapter 1. Now you're taught, (coughs) some of you may have been in churches where the pastor taught this. It's certainly the standard teaching today. You're taught that the people in the Old Testament look forward to the cross and the people, you and I, look back to the cross. Now there's no question about the fact that you and I do look back to the cross. The cross of Christ was the was the exclamation point in the history of the world. And, and guys who don't know their Bibles, people, pastors who have no clue about the Word of God, and, you know, uh, they, they, they read this stuff or they hear this stuff, or the scholars who even know less, or more, less than the Bible than, than they do, uh, they read their stuff, they get their teachings, and actually, to them, uh, it sounds pretty good. I mean, it sounds like a reasonable assumption. I'd love to tell you the definition that my drill sergeant used to give us of the word assumption, but we got women and children here today, and I couldn't do that. If you catch me alone, I'll give it to you. But the bottom line is simply this. Uh, that, was, that would be a safe assumption on their part, but nothing could be farther from the truth. And uh, yes, we do look back to the cross, but you're going to see here in a moment uh, very clearly uh, how that fallacy is a pipe dream that somebody smoked too much opium and, and to put it together. Now this read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified before 
the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Uh, unto whom it was revealed that uh, not unto themselves, but also as they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you uh, with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Now, here's the reason why you know, <coughs> if you know anything about your Bible at all, here's the reason you know clearly based on the scriptures, not some opium pipe dream of some Bible theologian, how you absolutely know that, uh, that the people in the Old Testament was not looking forward to the cross, but yes, we are looking back to it. Now, it's so ridiculously stupid that you feel you have to would feel embarrassed if you were a pastor, uh, but most of them not only do not have the sense of the Bible, they don't have the sense of being embarrassed when they don't know anything about the Bible. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to see here. First of all, look at verse 12. Unto whom it was revealed. Now, that it there is the Holy Spirit of God. And the first thing that I want you to know about your Bible, that in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit of God was not recognized as a person. He's, a, he's not recognized as a person. You know from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, again in Revelation 1, 14 and Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, that in the Old Testament, or under the Old Testament structure, which will also be true in the tribulation period, that the Holy Spirit of God didn't operate as a person. He operates through seven manifestations of spirits that are actually listed for you in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. And before the resurrection, the Holy Spirit of God is not referenced as a person. Now, it is today. We talked about this Thursday night. Somebody asked the difference between the Holy Spirit of God and the Holy Ghost found in the New Testament. And I showed you clearly from the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit, that title, will always be a reference to the person but the Holy Ghost will always be a reference to the indwelling Holy Spirit of God that is inside you. And uh, you, so you, you, that's the first thing you want to recognize and understand, that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit of God is never recognized as a person in a direct reference. Again, these are the details of putting the book together that you get uh, in time if you stay with it. And I call this, these things the hidden keys of the Bible. They're almost absolutely in, in, invaluable. Now, note, look at verse 11. It says that the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament prophets, in their preaching, they declared two things. One, the suffering of Christ, there's the crucifixion, first coming, and the glory of Christ, there's the second aspect, the second coming of Christ. He clearly tells you that when the Old Testament prophets came, they preached and testified of the sufferings of Christ, that is the crucifixion, and the glory that should follow, <coughs> that is the second coming of Christ. But what God did is he mixed the two of them together. He not only stuck them together in places, that he reversed them in places. And if you want to see some of this, I gave you uh, Genesis 3.15. You'll want to look at Jeremiah 23.5. There's one where he talks about the righteous branch, and then he talks about the king. You'll find that, I guess, in Genesis 49, 10, where he talks about the scepter, then he talks about Christ. You'll tie it in Genesis 49, 24, where he talks about the sheep and then the stone, which is the second coming. You'll find that in Psalms 102, a reference to the first coming and the second coming. You'll find that in Isaiah 53, 51, 54, Job chapter 30, places where it lays out the sufferings of Christ and the Jew could never get it. 
Now, this is something you have got to get. And it's really just like today. The key to rightly dividing the Word of God out will be the Holy Spirit of God. That is true in the Old Testament and also true in the New Testament. Now, the Bible clearly had told you that when the prophets came up, they preached about the suffering of Christ and they preached about the glory of Christ. He's just told you that. Now, if that is true, and it certainly is, then how come the nation of Israel missed his first coming? Somebody says, well, in the Old Testament, they look forward to the cross. Really? How come they missed it then? If they're looking forward to it, and he already told you they're preaching about it, how come they missed it? What happened? Of course, that's the great dilemma we find ourselves in today. And of course, you know, just like today, uh, they couldn't see it and they couldn't understand it because in the Old Testament, you're told this, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9, you're told that the nation of Israel rejected the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I'm going to tell you something. If you're ever going to learn your Bible, if you're ever going to get anything above what you get off the Internet, if you're ever going to be able to get into your Bible one-on-one and dig it out yourself, it's going to have to be your recognition of the Holy Spirit of God in your life that's going to teach you. If you're one of those surf net who get on the computer and surf it, or you even get on our website, and all you ever do is just glean off of that, and you don't use that to prepare you that at some point you can get into it yourself and make your deal with the Holy Spirit of God. I know you're saved, but I'm talking about Him illuminating everything that you need to have. I'm in Matthew chapter 12 and chapter 13. Jesus Christ showed up at the first coming of Christ. He displayed Himself. As in, in, in the book of Matthew, 28 chapters. Every chapter is a different chapter on him showing the nation of Israel that he is their Messiah and this is the first coming of Christ. If they were looking for it, why did they not get it? I'll tell you why. Because in Matthew chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 13, the nation of Israel takes the position that the Spirit of God by which he's revealing himself is the Spirit of Beelzebub. They equated the Holy Spirit of God with the, Holy, with the unholy spirit of the devil. And at that point, they couldn't get any more truth. And that's why they missed it. God had through the prophets laying out about the suffering and about the glory, but he stuck them in verses together and sometimes he reversed them. And the only way for the Jew to discern it and figure it out was through the Holy Spirit of God. But when they rejected it, when they called it the spirit of Beelzebub, when he says in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9, because you rejected the Holy Spirit of God, you will hear, but you won't understand. And you will see, but you'll never perceive. You know, that's the problem today. <coughs> the problem today is that pastors, we talked about this in, in people ministry yesterday, didn't we? The spirit of, 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 of uh, somebody uh, being deceptive, the spirit of falsehood, a guy getting up and preaching from his pulpit, something that isn't true, and the people being so stupid they don't hold him accountable, and they believe it. And, of course, they literally couldn't understand the Scriptures, uh, you know, and they, they missed the suffering part. They couldn't see it. They couldn't grasp it. They, 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 to this day, <coughs> when they read Isaiah chapter 53, a Jew, he cannot see it as Christ. He thinks it is his nation. And because they rejected the Holy Spirit of God, it wasn't a thing that they're looking forward to the cross. If they did, why didn't they accept him? 
It's like the old stupid argument, well, the sons of God back in Genesis chapter 6 were really, I just heard a guy preach on this the other day. He said, really, they were saved people marrying unsaved people just like today. Really? Well, let me ask you something, Dr. Bozo. If they were unsaved people marrying saved people and you got all these sons of God running around here, why didn't they get on the ark? You see, heresy sounds good till you run right into the truth of the Word of God stone wall. Then you're dead. Then you got a decision to make. You either got to back up and change your position or you follow the lie that you want to believe. And that's what the Jews did. Once they rejected the Holy Spirit of God, God shut the door of revelation. We see it as we talked last week, the church of the open door and the Philadelphian church age, and today we see the church of the closed door. You know why it's the church of the closed door? Because the church today has rejected the revelation of the, of the Holy Spirit of God <coughs> through the Bible. So what did the scribes and the Pharisees do? <coughs> once they got shut down, once there was no truth revealed from heaven anymore, the scribes and the rabbis went to work. And they invented the Midrash. The Midrash is the book that the Jews use instead of the Old Testament today. What is the Midrash? It's a man-made book that interprets the books of the Old Testament. So they now don't preach out of the Old Testament anymore. They'll open up the Midrash and they'll take what man's interpretation of the books of the Bible is because God shut the door of Revelation a long time ago. They'll open up the Talmud. The Talmud is a commentary on the law made up by the rabbis. In other words, they did with the Old Testament when the door of Revelation was shut what the Bible scholars did in the New Testament with the NIV and the RSV. Once the door of Revelation got shut and they couldn't get anything from God, they started to make it up. I think it was Lauren. Lauren, where are you at here tomorrow? I know you're here someplace. Where's Lauren? And the kids? Okay, he's in the key. He told me yesterday that they went up to his old church last uh, weekend for something with the kids. And they went to their old church that Sunday. And he says, they're not using the Bible anymore. He said, some guy has written a whole book on what the real Bible means. And so everybody gets the book. Instead of preaching the Bible, they go through that guy's book. That's where we're at today. Now, I'm telling you, to me, one of the great things that God ever gave me was just one single verse that was absolutely the one verse I would say that opened up and got my head squared around straight and it's in Luke chapter 20 verse 45 and he simply says this that he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures now I'm going to tell you something if the Holy Spirit of God doesn't open up your understanding and give you that book you ain't getting anything and in John chapter 16, you have seven things the Holy Spirit of God will do for you. And number seven, wow, it's a killer. And when the Holy Spirit of God won't do it for you, you have to get off the Internet. You have to get it out of somebody's book. You have to get somebody's book that tells you what the Bible is, and then you just teach that because God shut the door of revelation in your life. Now, <clears throat> Moving on here. To completely see and understand this great doctrine, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll see it again. I mean, the idea that the people in the Old Testament were looking forward to the cross and we're looking back, you've got to be out of your mind. Not really, just out of your Bible. Out of God's mind. 
Now, here's what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, just picking up in verse 9. For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more does the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. What he's simply saying there, if the Old Testament was glorious and the Old Testament puts you under a law to condemnation, then the New Testament, which is about righteousness, exceeds in glory. That's all he's saying here. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, Old Testament, much more that remaineth is glorious, the New Testament. Seeing then we have such a hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. Now, when Moses was up on the mountain, he was face to face with God. And he got the law. And God gave Moses the whole complete plan. When Moses came down, his face was shining. Because he had been in the presence of the glory of God. And his face was shining with a glow. And I'm going to tell you something. Your face does the same thing when you get in that book and you have a relationship with him. You can tell in a glance by your countenance if you're on today or you're off. It's just that simple. And uh, you know what? Uh, It's a thing where when he comes down, he scared the people. Now, I'm going to tell you something else. When you really get tied into the word of God and you really start doing things for God, you're going to scare people. Because people who don't want to do right are going to be scared of people who want to do what's right. And that glow is going to be intimidating to them. You might as well get that straight. So he comes down, verse 13, and not as Moses would put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end. Now that veil in his face was the glory of God. And the glory of God is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because they could not look into his face and see that glory because they were afraid of it, he put a veil over their face and they could not see the glory of God to the end because they were afraid of the glory of God that was shining on them through the face of Moses. And then he says, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament which veil was done away in Christ. What he's saying here is that the Jew to this day cannot see the glory of Christ either the first testament, first coming or the second coming because they have rejected the Holy Spirit of God that illuminates the light in the glory of God. But even unto this day, verse 15, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. You know what Moses said? He said, if, what Jesus said? He said, if you would have believed Moses, you would have believed me. Why? Because he wrote of me. But you can't see it. Don't give me this idea that, well, back in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the Christ. You're out of your mind. The prophets preached the glory of God and they preached the sufferings of God. And he put them right in the same verse. But it took the Holy Spirit of God to discern it. And when they rejected the Holy Spirit of God in the Old Testament, when they rejected the Holy Spirit of God when Christ showed up in Matthew, they missed it. Wasn't nobody looking for nothing. You got that from a guy who couldn't figure his way out of the Bible. His life depended on it. (coughs) Nevertheless, verse 16, When it shall turn to the Lord, Israel, 
When it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. There's the millennium. And where does she turn to the Lord? During the tribulation period. You see what she got? And then our great verse, verse 17. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. The real true liberty will be the millennial reign of Christ. You have the liberty now in a spiritual sense when the Holy Spirit of God becomes the number one thing in your life, and you live in that same liberty that Israel's going to live in during the millennium. Incredible. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are chained into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. You know what he's saying? He says you can see the Lord in the Old Testament you can see the Lord in the New Testament but it takes the Spirit of God to reveal it to you. It had nothing to do with Israel looking forward to the cross. That first coming and the suffering was preached by the prophets. You can find it all the way through the Bible but it stuck right in there with the second coming. And they could not see it. They couldn't see it because they rejected the one person that would illuminate the scriptures to teach them. And that's why men can't get one thing out of the Bible today. Because they reject the one thing that can illuminate it. Illuminate it. And uh, it's just that, just that simple. So when you learn these things, that is a major deal. I am telling you right now. That will... That will spring off into a many, many other things. So when you learn these things, it will help open up the Bible uh, for you and to you. Now, I, I don't make any apology for what I'm about to say, and most of you know this. I believe that the book uh, is God's Word from cover to cover, including the cover. I believe that the Word of God in a King James 16 of an authorized version is everything that God intended it to be, and it needs no... Uh, I, I believe it was inspired by God, it was preserved by God, and you have it today because God wanted you to have it. And I know all the arguments, believe me. In almost 50 years, I've been through them several times. And when God put together his final revelation to man till the advent of Christ, second coming, he gave us a book that in every aspect will follow the doctrines of the Bible consistently. I mean, if you know anything about history, you know that as far as God was concerned, this is not man now because man will say this is not true. It isn't about how man views it. It's how God views it. There's only been three universal languages down through history. And that will be Hebrew in the Old Testament when the world was a Hebrew-speaking world. You say, well, the world wasn't a Hebrew-speaking world. As far as God's concerned, it was. Because all God cared about was the nation of Israel. You say, well, most of the other world didn't speak it. As far as God was concerned, it didn't matter. All God was concerned about was His people and the language that He gave them. The Bible talks about being a pure language, Hebrew. And he gave it to them. You say, well, the Amalekites, the Hittites, and all these other nations out there, the Egyptians and the, and the Assyrians and the Babylonians, God didn't give a flip about them. You said, well, you had 500 other languages out here that everybody in the world was speaking. God didn't give a flip about them. God's universal language that if a man that was an Amalekite or an Assyrian or a Babylonian or an Egyptian or whatever he was wanted to come and find God, he had to come through one people, one nation, and one language. Because that was God's universal language. A little bit later on in the New Testament, when the world became a Greek-speaking world because of uh, the Greek empire and impacted the world, then when the New Testament was written, it was written in Greek. And later on, when the, uh, when the, uh, when the, when the world was changing again and God was moving toward the second coming and the, uh, bringing back the nation of Israel, God brought the world into an English-speaking world and made the universal language English. I've actually had guys who were supposed to be smart 
would argue with that because they wanted to believe that the real key to learning your Bible today would be Greek, the New Testament. And when I would make a statement, they would say, you're telling me that the English language is the universal language of the world? And I'd say, that's correct. And they'd say, well, what about all the people in the world that don't speak English? And my answer would be, and you're telling me that the Greek language is the, is the answer? Yes. What about all the people who don't speak Greek? In a world of, what, 8 billion people, there's probably less than one millionth of a percent who actually can speak and understand Greek, the Greek language. The Greek language of the Bible is not the Greek language from the Greeks today. It's, it's a dead language, and it's incredibly hard, and nobody speaks it. But you see the stupidity of, of their mindset when clearly through history, if you studied the, the origin and the foundation and the putting together of the English language connected with the nations in Europe and what God is doing, are you kidding me? You know, and I'm telling you, God gave us an English Bible to a world in a universal language of English that follows the law of grammar in the English language. When you study the formation of the English language, it doesn't even come into about 1000 A.D., and then it goes through a perfecting process. And when God decided to put the Bible to the final Bible out to man till the second coming of Christ, he waited till the English language got to its most purest form. And then he put the purest Bible in the purest form of language of English that it was. And when those King James translators sit down and put that Bible together, they not only had English in a perfect universal language that was perfect as far as the apex, and then it degenerated. All languages do it. They put forth the book in the best perfect language that they could, and they used the laws of grammar to lay that thing out. The Holy Spirit of God just mixed and mapped that thing the way he wanted it to go. Now, we believe the, we believe the premillennial return of Christ, don't we? Yes, we do. That means that we believe that Christ is going to come back before the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, we're in the minority on that today. Most people believe in a post-millennial return, that they're going to make the world a better place, and then Christ is going to come back. And some of them believe all millennialism, that it's a spiritual kingdom, and Christ really isn't coming back, literally. And uh, we, know that, uh, you know, we know that that isn't true. And if I didn't know that it wasn't true because I got 10,000 verses in the Bible, I know it was true by the order of the books in the Old Testament that God did. Because when God put his Bible together, not only did he use the punctuation, not only did he use the word, not only did he use the paragraph marks, not only did he use uh, the words in italics, he used the very order of the books himself. Now, if you had a Hebrew Old Testament, the order of books in the Hebrew Old Testament is not the same order as in your King James Bible. And, of course, uh, there's a reason for that. And uh, uh, the last book uh, in, a, in, a, in a Hebrew Bible, when a Jew opens that up, if he would ever read it, would be Second Chronicles. And he ends his Old Testament with Second Chronicles. And at the end of Second Chronicles, that Jew is told to go back to the land. And that's a fulfillment of I don't know how many prophecies in the Old Testament. Jew doesn't get it, but it's right there. But you see, the last book in your Bible is in Second Chronicles. The last book in your Old Testament is the book of Malachi. And Malachi is the day of the Lord. So when you start to come back and look at the books of your Bible, the way they're put in your Bible, it, it teaches us the truth of the premillennial return of Christ. Because in Second Chronicles chapter 36, 
that Jew was told to go back. In, in, in your book, it's a different order. He's told to go back. And in Ezra, he does go back, just like he did in 1918. And the book of Nehemiah, he rebuilds exactly like he did in 1948. The book of Esther is one of those strange books in the Bible where God is never mentioned anywhere, but God is behind the scenes. And lo and behold, in the book of Esther, there's a wedding in the king's garden, seven days and seven nights, picture of the marriage supper of the lamb and the rapture of the church. You know what the next book is? The next book is Job. Job's a picture of the Jew in the tribulation period. Job's in the land of us. That's where the Jew is. The name Job means one persecuted. There's 42 chapters in the book of Job, 42 months in the great tribulation period. At the end of the book over there in the book of Job, you're going to find in Job chapter uh, uh, 42, uh, you're going to find that Job gets back double everything he lost. If you go over to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 7, you'll find that, uh, that the nation of Israel at the second coming of Christ gets back double everything that they lost. You'll find in Job chapter 42 a, a, a type of the resurrection. You'll find a resurrection at the end of the tribulation period. I mean, it's an incredible thing. Job's on the ground seven days being persecuted by the devil. The nation of Israel goes through persecuted by the devil for seven years of the tribulation. You couldn't miss it. Next book is Psalms. The next book is Psalms, David on the throne, picture of the second crumbing in the millennium. You know what the next book is? It's Proverbs, eternity, the mind of God, the everlasting Father. The books of your Bible lay out for you and document the premillennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care what any scholar says about it. And you know what? There's a lot of idiots out there that are teaching against the rapture today. You can do the same thing with the rapture coming through the Bible. You can, go to, you can go to Genesis 5. You can go to Song of Solomon 2. You can go to Proverbs 25, Revelation 4, Revelation chapter 11. That ain't even getting into 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 4. I mean, that's the way the Bible was put together. And when you learn those things, you learn your Bible. <clears throat> I am not interested in teaching you a lot of things about the Bible. And I know that that's far as some of you will ever take it. I get that. So let's talk in the few moments that we have left, and we're really doing good today. Let's talk a few moments that we uh, uh, have left uh, about this thing as it lays out inspirationally. Now, Notice our verse says, established the land. That's what he did. And the key word here will be the word established. Yes, I am back in Proverbs now. Excuse me. Now that's Israel in the Old Testament going into the millennium. And what God wanted to do with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament but never got accomplished other than the short time that Solomon's on the throne for 40 years because of their rejection is God wanted to establish them. And he did, but it didn't last. And, uh, you know, uh, studying the history of the nation of Israel is an amazing study. Uh, it's one of those things that you, you, you just can't, it, it's incredible. And, uh, you know, we've talked about it before in the people ministry and also in Bible Institute, uh, the five stages of, of, of bringing Israel to where God wants her to be. And the whole Bible in the Old Testament is a record of this. The first part would be Genesis, which where God, we can see clearly the formulation of the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then in Exodus chapter 12, in the four books following, or three books following, you find the calling out in Exodus chapter 12. When you get into Joshua, Judges, and First and Second Samuel, you actually now see the establishment. 
This is where they are. God intended them to be established, and this is what he wanted to do with them. But it didn't work out because it all falls to pieces. So you see in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, you see the demise of the nation of Israel. And then, of course, in Second Chronicles chapter 36, you see the captivity, and they're done until uh, the first coming of Christ shows up, and then they reject him again. And then, of course, they're done to the church age, to the tribulation, to the second coming. The nation of Israel gets established around Solomon, but it doesn't last. It's only a short period of time. And the land was established through David wiping out the last of the enemies, like we talked about last week, and then Solomon coming to the throne where he brings peace for 40 years. Now, that's a historical thing. It's a beautiful picture, but the parallels of that are quite incredible. And I tell you many, many times, the parallels between the Old Testament and the New Testament are really incredible. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, we're in the Old Testament, and I've told you this many, many times, God builds the nation of Israel around a temple. In all the world, once the land is established, that temple uh, is where the world is going to come to worship. You see that in 1 Kings 10, a number of places. But in the New Testament, we know that it's a kingdom of God, and it's not a literal temple. Now we know that your body and my body is the temple. And where in the Old Testament, the world came to the temple once the land was established. In the New Testament, oh, here it comes. You take your temple to the world. You ready for this? Not a time to go to the bathroom. Are you ready for this? When you get established. In the nation of Israel, when it was the kingdom of heaven, he wanted to establish the land. In the kingdom of God, he wants to establish you as his temple. We talked about it last week, worshiping God with your very substance. But in both cases, the word will be established. And you as a New Testament child of God will, through the righteous judgment of a king, that's our verse today, you'll get established. Now the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 4, where the word of a king is, there's power. So God wanted to establish you. He wanted to establish us in a church age through the word of a king. So you got a King James 6, 10, 11. I'm not even going to get in today to talk about the development of the name of what Jacob means in Hebrew and how it's all connected, why God didn't give a Bible where Henry was on the throne or Edward or give it where Mary or give it where Elizabeth. He waited till James got on the throne because of the consistency of the scriptures. I'm not even going to have time to get into that today. wouldn't do it if I had time. The great example of being established, as we already know, would be uh, in the life of Samuel. We have talked about this many, many times in 1 Samuel chapter 3. We know from our past studies that in 1 Samuel chapter 3, God had a plan for Samuel. He wanted to establish him. So through Samuel's mother, he takes him down to the te uh, temple, gives him to the high priest because the structure for the Old Testament was that Old Testament priesthood built around the temple. And the Bible tells us that it, it's an incredible period of time because there's no open vision, but God is only giving things through the Word of God. Incredible. So Samuel's put into God's structure, and he serves God and comes up through that. And, you know, uh, we, we see God in his life, but he can't yet discern God, who he is or what God is doing. And the Bible says in verse 21 of 1 Samuel 3 that the Word of God has not yet been revealed to him. And I see a lot of you like that, especially you new kids who just come in and you new folks that are really trying to just learn your Bible. 
Uh, you know, and some of you been around for maybe a while, but and you're starting to put it together. But, you know, God, uh, God hasn't made it clear to you yet. Yesterday in Bible uh, people ministry, we had what I would consider the greatest session anywhere on the planet on what it takes to have God's vision. I mean, it was absolutely probably the best that I ever laid it out. And I'm sure there could be somebody else laid out even better than me, but I'm just saying for where my church is and where you're at and what we're trying to do, if you missed that yesterday, you missed something because that was a crucial part of not only understanding the vision, but the burden that God has for you. Well, we laid that thing out in an incredible way. And, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we saw Samuel, much like you. He got into God's structure like you have, and he begins to grow. And verse 19 and 21 says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and did let none of his words fall to the ground. Now here it comes. And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. Now, that's a biblical process for you to get grow and get to the place where God can use you and, and you giving him your substance and him establishing you. And uh, I, I, you know, in any church, I, I don't care where it is, on what level it is, in any church, you will have people who are invaluable to the ministry. I mean, you really will. And most people who are invaluable really don't see themselves as invaluable. It's the ones who walk around and strut around like they are valuable, who are worthless. Uh, it's just the way it works. Uh, but I want to say, you know, many of you, I, I couldn't do what I do here without you. I mean, uh, you may not think that you're important and you may not think that you add anything, but that's simply not true. Uh, you know, uh, I, I look at them and, and guys like that, and we talked about this yesterday, you know, I, I, I look at people who are invaluable in the ministry. And it doesn't mean that you're doing everything in the church. It just means that you have a sense and a presence. Of, well, I'll explain it here in a moment. And, uh, you know, I, I, look at, I look at you like David looked at his mighty men of valor back in Samuel 23, it was, was. You're above the norm. You're Christians that are, uh, that are you're not the normal Christians. And uh, you have a sense about you that is above uh, the normal mindset of Christianity. And you have allowed, like we talked about last week, those four areas to be built into your life that made David's mighty men of valor, mighty men, courage, determination, loyalty, and honor, if you remember last week. You know, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, with a great chapter about putting on the whole armor of God, it says that you and I are to stand and take our stand. It says like four times, stand, stand therefore, have done all to stand. And our job is to stand. I won't tell you something. It takes courage to stand. And most people don't have that courage. They just don't. And so the first thing we talked about last week was courage. And then the second thing I listed was determination. And, you know, courage is a good thing, but you have to be determined that you're going to keep your stand. Otherwise, somebody will talk you out of it. And the first thing, third thing was loyalty. Loyalty to the Word of God. Loyalty to each other. And the fourth thing was honor, honor that bond of, of honor among each of us that nothing or nobody ever gets between us, that we're here to do a job and we are above those things that, that snag most of God's people. You pass through that portal. You pass through that thing in life. 
And you're not looking back. You're not, come, you're not somebody who's going to go back to the world. You have, you, like we said yesterday, you got on your tower. You're on your watch. And just as you came here to begin to grow by the book, in time, God in time will establish you. Now, if you ever want to get established, I'm, I'm totally honest with you, if you ever want to get established uh, for the work of the Lord and give Him all your substance, there's four things you've got to do. And I see this in many, many, many of you, even many, some of you that don't think you have it, I think you do. And the first thing is you have to get into God's structure like young Samuel did. You have to get into a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching church. You have to put every, all your eggs in one basket. You have to realize that in Acts chapter 13, the church at Antioch is the model for us. And in 1 Samuel chapter 3, uh, it, it, it's a thing. And I want to tell you, the lining those up with the four things that uh, mighty men of valor, it takes courage to do that because you have to walk away from some things. You have to walk away from some people. So you have to come to the place where you, you get into God's structure. And you realize that whatever substance you have is going into that structure. Then I'll tell you the second thing. It says, and Samuel grew. You, once you get into the structure, folks, you have to have a plan to grow. This idea that you're just going to go here and hit something here and get something here and get something here and read this and do this, you'll never learn the Bible that way. At some point in your life, you have to get a process for you to grow. Here, it's laid out clearly. Discipleship one, discipleship two, Bible Institute, the people in the ministry, the prayer groups, you know, uh, like the, all the new people that we had up here today, this year that got into it or teaching now. Sunday morning, Thursday night, the one-on-one option that you have. And, uh, you know, it's just that, it's just that simple. I, hey, I have spent over half my life learning the Bible. I've spent over half my life learning the Bible. Now, what time I have got left, my job is to get it into as many of you as I can. It's just that simple. You know, I read through the Bible, and I know that God's school, and I tell you this all the time, God's school is never out. I don't care if you're 90 years old. You're still in school. But I've given before that in God's school, there's seven classes that you've got to keep taking all of your life. You never graduate from them. You've got to take an English class because your Bible's in English. You've got to take civics and government because the Bible is built around the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. That's a government. You've got to take a biology class because you've got to understand you're a body, soul, and a spirit, and you've got to know how to divide that up. You've got to take a history class because you've got to understand your roots. You've got to take a music class because you've got to understand psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You've got to take a math class because God divides and multiplies in the ads. You've got to take a science class because the Bible's the most scientific book on the planet. In other words, it's a lifestyle of growth. But there's no room in God's seven classes for the drama class or for recess. God's school is never over. Then the third thing, and that would be determination. You've got to be determined for that. That's why so many of God's people don't make it. That's why they, they're, they're, they're just, they can't stay with it. They just can't. First of all, they don't have the courage to do it. Second of all, if you don't have the courage, my God, you're not going to have the determination to do it. Then the third one is loyalty. And the Lord was with him. 
You got to do it God's way. I'm telling you right now, every issue or problem we've had in life simply came because we did it our way instead of God's way. And it's just that simple. You can alibi it all you want. You can blame your problems on everybody else and everything else. But I'm telling you right now, we have the issues in our life because we are so bullheaded, so prideful that we had to do it our way. And as Dr. Phil says, how's that working for you? And the quicker you get that part of your life in order, the better off you're going to be. And if you're ever going to get established, you'll have to follow a biblical process, a pattern to do it. Established with your loyalty. Loyalty to your family. Loyalty to the Word of God. Loyalty to the church. Loyalty to your Bible. Loyalty to the people that you're working with. Loyalty to God's way, not just your way. And the fourth one, and here's the key, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. Honor his words in every aspect of your life. Now that's really the question today. Sorry it took so long to get to the question, but in your own life, in your family, in your marriage, in your personal relationship, in the daily doings, how much of the word of God are you not willing to apply? What and how much will your pride, your bullheadedness, your my way or the highway keep you at arm's length from ever being established? Picking and choosing (coughs) out of the Bible (coughs) what you want to do over what you don't want to do. And when you do those things, at some point, God will establish you, doing them the right way, of course. Not a word falling to the ground. You hang on to every word of God. You know how you get those secret things I talked about today? And I know, back in my day, that was Bible 101, and I thank God it was, because I'm not very smart. But I'll tell you this right now, back there when I used to sit and listen to those boys, I hung on to every word that they said. I used to listen to them lay out the doctrinal applications in places, and I thought to myself, and I remember driving home, remember being, I lived by myself then, living, thinking, late at night, God, will I ever get to that point where I can do that? You know, in Acts chapter 13, it talks about the life of Paul. You know, Paul was saved in Acts chapter 9. He was baptized in Acts chapter 9. He joined the New Testament local church in Acts chapter 16. He grew with God, Acts chapter 12, 13. And and through his ministry, God established him, uh, you know, to others. And they recognized God's hand in his life. And never one time. I mean, Paul was a pretty individual. God pulled him, one man, to Sinai, laid it out, and gave him the plan of the gospel, which Paul called it my gospel, his own personal gospel, because God gave it to him. I don't know how many times he said God gave it to nobody else but me. He held that up high as it was right from him to God. He didn't get it from anybody else. And you know, that could be a pretty prideful thing. But when Paul was ready to God for God to use him, you know what he did? He didn't walk into the church of Antioch and said, hey, here I am. I just got back from Sinai. I got all the answers and the secrets. You know what he did? He didn't say a word to anybody. He got into that church. He went to work. He did what he was supposed to do. He paid his dues. He did everything that God told him to do, and he waited for the Holy Spirit of God to establish him. And there came a time in his life when the people in that church, listening to the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God said, I've chosen him. Separate me, Paul and Barnabas, for the ministry. You know why? God established him. In other words, you don't establish yourself. You're kidding yourself. 
You don't walk around here like you're in charge of a thousand things. You don't, you don't pretend who you're this spiritual person or that. You know what you do? You get in here and you clean the toilets this afternoon. You get on a cleaning crew. Don't pick and choose, well, I'm only going to preach the places where there's a lot of... You get in there and eat some mud and some dirt and some blood. Let God establish you like he's supposed to establish you. And I've watched that same process at work in so many of your lives. You fixed what you had to fix. You made right what you had to make right. Sometimes it took fourfold, didn't it? Yes, it did. And I watch your attitude change. And for the nation of Israel, the king will establish the land at the second coming of Christ. And for us, the king will establish his temple in you, your body, to take to the world. And the job of the Holy Spirit of God, seven things in John 16. The job of the Word of God, seven things the Word of God will do for you in Hebrews chapter 4. The job of this church, Acts chapter 13 and 20, and my job as a pastor is to try to establish you, to give you everything that you need. You know, in my life, I, I may just speak candidly here for a moment. I'm not sure what candidly means, but I heard somebody else use that, and it really set the mood, so... If I may speak to you just a moment, I, I, have, uh, I have a real sense of urgency in my life. I don't show it, I, 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 but I do. Because I know that I have more time behind me than I have ahead of me. And I, my urgency is to take every moment I can, and yet in every way I can, to train leaders. Women and men who fall into that category of David's mighty men of valor who will take their stand. And I can train that after I'm gone, if the Lord doesn't come, that, that uh, you know, that I know it'll carry on. You know, most pastors will try to reach the world through missions, but they'll never build anything in their own church. My mindset is that I want to reach the world, but I realize that this church cannot reach the world without building people who can reach the world. Leadership. And it's my prayer every day. Lord, just, just let me build one more. Just keep one more coming. Send me one more kid. Send me one more kid from across the country someplace that doesn't have a mom or dad. Send me one more kid in our own church who mom and dad have failed miserably that that wants to do what's right. Just give me one more. Just just give me one more. Just just send one more my way. Lord, just weed out the non-hackers, burn off the dross, only leave the pure silver and gold to work with. I've had people come to this church, you know, that they've come in here six or seven times and they last about three months. Our last one just blew out of here a couple of months ago. And I know what'll happen. I know what'll happen. I'll bump into him at a bank someplace or I'll bump into him someplace and he'll come up and he'll say, Bob, I really need to talk to you. I, uh, or, or he'll come to the place that uh, he'll, 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 he'll say, you know what, that ch- the church uh, just, you know, it just didn't work for us. And I'm going to say to him, you know what, you're absolutely right. Church is a terrible church. I'm thinking about leaving it myself. I mean, you've been here seven times and it hasn't worked for you. You know what, the eighth time is not going to be any charm. There's people like that. There's people who will never pull their life together, never pull the act together, and they're always going to blame somebody else for it. And I'll be honest with you, I'm tired of it. I mean, I put up with it all my life. Hey, after almost 50 years, would you allow me to be tired of some things? I'm tired of that. I'm tired of people who want to play games. I'm tired of people who want to use this church. I'm tired of people who want to use me. 
tired of people who want to use you. Now, I know ministry is putting yourself in the position of being used. I can't. I'm tired of it. There comes a time when you simply say, you know what? I don't, all the time I got left, I'm not going to chase around all over the world for you. We got some things we got to do. And I just ask the Lord, God, just bring me one more. I love the guys and the men that, and women that God has brought back that were with me so many years ago. To me, they're absolutely special. I mean, they mean the world to me. And I just say, Lord, keep them coming. You know, I, I, I tell you over and over again that, that everything rises and falls on leadership. That is so true in the Old Testament, but it is so true in the New Testament church. You know, and I, I over the years, I, I, uh, I, I, I've read every book on leadership that there probably was. And I've got to be honest, some of it was okay. But you know where you really learn the key of leadership? You learn reading the biographies of great men who were great leaders. And in my life, most of them were military guys. I think of Hal Moore. You all saw the movie, um, We Were Soldiers, based on a true story. Every kid had to watch that movie. Hal Moore was an incredible leader. He dropped his 400 men into a football-sized field in the, in the, in the Triang Valley over there and was up, found himself against 10,000, a whole division of NVA, and he won. You know why he won? Because he was a great leader. He understood the principles of leadership. Read the Patton papers. Patton was a prima donna in a lot of ways, but he was a great leader. He understood leadership. Almo Halsey was an incredible leader. When I was in the Army, we had a guy by the name of Bull Simmons. Bull Simmons was a colonel. Never got past the point of colonel in the Special Forces, but he was an incredible leader. And I'm telling you, my job is to build leaders, but I want to tell you this, because in all these books I read over the years, they always talk about leadership and looking for the ability in people's lives to be leaders. I want to tell you right now, leadership has nothing to do with ability. But leadership has everything to do with responsibility. You're not just responsible for the easy calls. You have to be responsible for the hard calls. You have to be able to make the call decisions in your life, in your family, in your ministry. Anybody can make the easy calls, but a leader has to make the tough calls. And I'll tell you something else. A person who always has to win, a person who always has to be number one, a person has to always be right, will never make a good leader. You know why? You'll never be a good leader until you lose. You'll never be a good leader till you fail. You'll never be a good leader till you fall. And then through determination, loyalty, and honor, and courage, you get up and you lead through it. That's what makes leaders. Yourself, your family, and in your church. And for us, this verse is an incredible verse because it lays out for us that God wants to establish you he wanted to establish Israel and have all the world to come to Israel, and Israel rejected it. So he moved into the New Testament, and he wants to establish the temple in you, and he wants to take you to the world. And most of God's people today have rejected it, and it goes right back to the same rejection, Old Testament and New Testament, the rejection of the Holy Spirit of God leading in your life. So what do we do? 
to maintain our pride, to maintain our, our vision of spirituality. We get a lot of man-made crap putting into Christianity that pretends that we're really spiritual. And as the book of Revelation says, we think we're big, we think we're rich, and we have need of nothing. But in reality, we are poor, blind, wretched, and miserable. And we are the church of the closed door. doesn't have to be that way. Not only is the church of the church of the closed door is simply in existence because Christians are Christians with the closed door of their heart. They won't allow the Holy Spirit of God to do what he wants to do, what he saved them for, to establish you. But if you're ever going to be established, it's going to be God's way. It ain't going to be yours. And you're going to have to change some things. And for most of God's people, they're never going to do that. Their way, as much as they complain about it, as much as they don't like it, as much as they don't want to do it, they become comfortable in it. So we'll hold up there, and this has been valuable stuff, man. I mean, this goes way beyond. Here's the inspirational little tickle your tongue this morning and give you this. This is down where the Bible really hits the road.